This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. Today, we're talking about a poem. A poem. And the title of the poem is... Oh, what is it again? Well, the French is un coup de dé. N'abolira jamais le hasard, which is a roll of the dice will never obliterate contingency. Something like that. I don't know. I, there's probably loads of different translations. <laughs> yes, yes. That's the poem. And the theme this week is contingency. So we'll start with Helen. Okay. So, <laughs> um, how do we talk about a poem about pure contingency? How do we analyze it, decide in what form to publish it? How do we translate it and disseminate it? Many philosophers have contemplated this piece of work by Mallarmé. For Derrida, through his concept of différence, sense lies within the spaces between words. Like in the early years of a child, the not or no generates meaning. If the graphic design of the piece echoes the random scattering of the roll of a dice, does any attempt to duplicate or reformulate the poem, particularly when a transfer of the piece from one language into another requires an alteration of the shape of those words, obliterate its very meaning. Contemporary philosopher Quentin Mayasu goes further in his take on the poem. Rather than seeing the poem as a, as a linguistic graphic of pure chance, he sees within it a sort of specifically formulated code. Malarmé for Mayasu was deliberate, hiding deep within this poem's cosmic form a message on the nature of, of the world through the presence of a specific number. This is more than art, he argues. It is a quasi-spiritual work, a call to raise art from secular representation to the state of a new religion. This is a call to go beyond Christianity and to believe in a form of God, precisely because God doesn't and cannot currently exist, although might, for Mayasu, earning the title of speculative realist philosopher, at some time in the future because God itself is a possibility caught in the net of contingency. The poem was written at the end of the 19th century after a hundred years of societal, political and economic change. This change was as chaotic as any tempest, new waves of ideas and actions crashing onto an evolving nation from one decade to the next. Romanticism, realism, naturalism, impressionism, symbolism, all these movements attempted to capture some truth about the way of the world that the previous movement had missed. From phenomenological impressionism, where mere fact wasn't enough, to a decadent Weissman railing against the scientific realism of Zola or the totalizing Balzac. In poetry during the latter years of that century, there was a move towards free verse. This was a rebellion against the apparently failed strictures of clear poetic codes that had dominated the form in the years before. Malarmé for Mayasu was responding to the crisis in verse, not by railing against these codes, reacting to them and therefore defining himself against them. He was instead leaning into these codes, cosmically entering into them, creating something so codified that he exploded the form and within it stumbled upon something new. Perhaps we can liken Mallarmé's discovery in his reflection on dated codified forms to Hegel's reflection on Kant. Unlike Kant, who articulated the limit of reason because it always ends in contradiction, Hegel reversed Kant to suggest that reason is, is the absolute precisely because it always ends in contradiction. Contingency or contradiction, not necessity, is the only absolute. But to get to that understanding, we must give ourselves over to form or reason. For Mayasu, the very ex existence of the world is testament to a rupture in the cont continuity of being. Thought only exists because of contradiction. Speech only exists because of an essential not. The universe itself could only ever have come about through the novelty of rupture. A miracle, he argues, is only possible in a world without God. If a godlike being controlled the universe, any event must be deliberate. Any biblical miracle, therefore, is a matter of fact, a matter of choice. We should be reassured, though, by this radical contingency. Many people end up in psychoanalysis precisely because they cannot imagine that a kind of world beyond the traumatic repetition of past failures might be possible. The cure in psychoanalysis relies on having faith in the possibility that things can shift and change. In this atheistic mode of spirituality for Mayasu, the metaphysical is only possible because of a non-existent God. And so the best laid plans of mice and men will always be exploded by the contingency of contradiction. This does not mean that we should stop making plans, and this does not mean that, we that contradiction is the end for us. It is rather the beginning. And we can only get to the contradiction, and therefore the new, by, like Hegel with reason and Mallarmé with form, engaging almost naively in the world. All right. Nina, you're up. Okay. Some non-written-down uh, 
thoughts, more contingent, random throws of the thought dice, as it were. <laughs> um, I suppose my understanding of this poem um, primarily comes from the work of Alain Badiou. But before I sort of talk a little bit about Badiou and events, I wanted to talk more broadly about risk and the relationship between like bounded and unbounded um, possibility, because clearly there is a difference between you know, the dice in which you can get one of six results and the situation in which the result or the what might happen is unbounded or unknown. And what we have, I think, in our, in our society, and I taught a course on risk um, recently, is if you read Ulrich Beck and these very kind of like dry German theorists about the risk society, is a society that's generated a whole series of problems for itself that it then tries to solve by increasing sort of safety measures and health and safety laws and so on. Um, but in a way that that kind of technological fix generates yet more risk problems. So instead of a world of bounded risk where, let's say, um, you are a peasant and you live in the countryside and you might die of um, diphtheria or you might get run over by the uh, the the local um, lord's um, horse and trap. Um, you live in a world in which there is uh, pollution and nuclear disaster and you know potential for all kinds of unbelievably hazardous things. Um, most of which are outside of your reckoning, your ability to um, conceive of them. In fact, so that this generates a huge amount of anxiety. And I think with the pandemic, and if you look at the work of um, Agamben and some of the people he's drawing on, Esposito around immunity and others on the way in which health is sort of increasingly used as a sort of mechanism um, for determining um, a kind of biopolitical safetyism, right? So health is, you know, in a way, this is, you know, biopolitics uh, more generally, but that that the as the idea of a society that tries or governments that try to kind of absolutely limit, let's say, um, risk or the relationship to death and therefore to life, as Illich would say, um, are becoming increasingly um, dominant. You know that that mechanism of um, safetyism um, and the kind of health terrorism, <laughs> as the Gambian would say you know, seems to point to a deeper metaphysical question, really, about the the risk of its existence itself, you know, and the fact that to live is to to die and to, to, to be open, if you like, to all kinds of encounters, which may or may not be very risky, you know, and, and instead we have a world in which that tries to um, limit these, the possibility of risk in encounters, um, to, possibly almost with a kind of underlying uh, motivation that it would be somehow uh, feasible to eliminate risk, you know, and what would a society that was driven almost like maniacally towards the elimination of risk actually look like? It would it would be a terrifying world. In fact, it would be a completely closed and claustrophobic world, very hygienic world, a very monitored world, very surveilled world, the kind of world that we are increasingly entering into. And I think one of the things that Badiou, when he's talking about um, the encounter or the event, these are always undecidable situations, right? This is why Malame, even though people have criticised Badiou for his very strong reading of Ancuda Day, basically what what Badiou is talking about are these sorts of um, these these sort of happenings, these events that uh, can't be seen from inside the situation when you begin right so they're not only contingent and one's relationship to them remains contingent you can't in a way ever prove them as it were they don't necessarily have the form of a um a definitive factual statement it's like falling in love let's say you you encounter someone you have a um you meet somebody and they transform let's say your experience of the universe so the entire cosmos is reoriented on the basis of this chance encounter with somebody else and then love is the event, love is the encounter. And there, there are you know, these four conditions in Badiou, uh, uh, love, science, uh, politics and art, in which these different um, events or encounters or happenings um, are um, happen. And philosophy's job, in a way, according to Badiou, is to preserve the truths that are specific to particular 
conditions. And so, but there's a kind of meta point there, which is sort of exemplified by Malame's poem, which is that for any of these things to happen in the first place, there has to be the possibility of contingency or events happening at all. If we lived in a purely um, ontologically homogenous universe, if there was just simply a block of being, there would be no possibility for encounters to mean anything. Everything would simply be um, the same in a certain way. And this is one of the very early metaphysical issues you have in classical philosophy when you look at atomism. So you have atoms and void, but if atoms and void just is all there is and atoms always fall in the same direction, then you're never going to have any difference. There's never going to be a way in which contingency or difference comes into the system. So then you have Epicurus who comes up with the idea of the clinamon, which is the swerve, which is just randomness in a certain way. Sometimes, you know, even though we, we, we've got a purely determinate universe, like atoms are just falling in the void and combining and recombining, and it's purely materialist, there has to be, at least so they understand or come to understand the atomists, these moments of randomness or contingency and chance. You know, and then people have tried to map that onto contemporary think more contemporary thinking about um, you know atoms and subatomic particles, right? And they're not doing the same kind of thing, but you can see the desire for that kind of metaphorical link um, to be made. So, you know, I think I, ha I haven't necessarily been <laughs> rigorous in my analysis of these different concepts, but when we're talking about the poem, when we're talking about um, risk and contingency and chance and bounded and unbounded parameters. Like there is a kind of specificity to all these different terms. Um, and, you know, when we're talking about the political register, the, the social register, um, the philosophical register and so on, and these all mean slightly different things in different ways, I suppose. But I mean, I, I would strongly always defend, let's say, an openness to risk in, in any of these fields. I think a world without risk will be a world without love, without any scientific development without new artistic movements or without um, any form of political change. It would be a purely monitored, technocratic, same, you know, miserable, miserable world. And we must avoid this kind of world at all costs. Agreed. <laughs> that was great, Nina. I, I enjoyed that. All right. Now I'm up. When we throw dice, we try to regulate randomness. We decide the numbers all have fixed consequences, fixed meanings, and by nailing down those meanings, we make the future manageable. Mallarmé's poem reminds me of an old episode of the American sitcom Community. A group of friends order pizza, and when it arrives, they fail to decide who should go get it. Instead, they resort to rolling dice. A different timeline is created for each possible outcome with dramatically different consequences for the group depending on who gets the pizza. In some timelines, people fall in love, and others, people are shot and dismembered. At the end of the episode, one of the friends, Abed, intervenes to prevent the die roll. He says, Chaos already dominates enough of our lives. The universe is an endless, raging sea of randomness. Our job isn't to fight it, but to weather it together on the raft of life, a raft held together by those few rare, beautiful things that we know to be predictable. Abed knows that they can't control what happens when they roll the die, even if they think they can by assigning consequences to the outcomes. By leaving things to the die, they have surrendered control in the guise of assuming it, and making even a small concession to chance, they are utterly enveloped by it. Without our help, chance makes a mess of human events. Donald Trump was probably on track to win re-election before coronavirus exploded into everything. How can anyone possibly factor that in? So many commentators are frustrated because the mental maps of politics they were using in 2019 have been rendered rubbish. And then there are the gambles we've built into the system. Consider elections. Most of the time, the winner of an election isn't ahead in the polls consistently throughout the campaign. Some days they'll be up and others they'll be down. And even when they stay up, the margin fluctuates. More often than not, the winner of the election is determined as much by its date as by anything else. In 1976, the economy was improving, and Gerald Ford's poll numbers were rising, and it was almost enough for him to come back and beat Jimmy Carter. If the election were held a month or two later, it might well have happened. And if it had, the Republicans likely would have been blamed for the recession of 1980. Ronald Reagan wouldn't have been president. Maybe the changes we saw in the 80s would have been avoided or delayed or slowed. But Gerald Ford faced election in November, not January. He was running in November 1976, not November 1977. Perhaps that made all the difference. American elections are fixed on a timetable, but that doesn't save us from randomness. 
In Britain, elections and referendums are scheduled by governments, but they don't always go the way governments hope they will go. David Cameron was a fearsome gambler. First, he gambled on electoral reform, and he won. Then he gambled on Scottish independence, and it was close, but he won again. Then he gambled on Brexit, and that proved one gamble too many. If he wins all three gambles, he looks like a shrewd politician. Miss just one, and he immediately looks too incompetent to continue. But in both cases, it's the same David Cameron. He's neither shrewd nor incompetent. He's a gambler. He liked his odds better than he liked the consequences of simply deciding. That ultimately is what bothers people about him. Politicians are meant to make choices, but Cameron left it up to chance. One of my favorite former students hates the idea that the universe might really have a level of randomness in it. He wants quantum physics to be a big misunderstanding of the science. But what fun is a plan if you're certain, positively certain, that it's going to work? Then life becomes like one of those terrible computer games where you hold your mouse over one of your options, and the game tells you every last thing that's going to happen if you click the button. There's a game I like called Crisis in the Kremlin. It's set in the 80s during the twilight years of the Soviet Union. You're supposed to make the right decisions to keep the Soviet Union together. The trouble is that you have no idea what the consequences of your decisions will be. The statistics you're presented with are untrustworthy, and the reports on the consequences of your decisions are often vague beyond belief. Some casualties. You tell your scientists to research technologies that are mere slogans, unsure whether the money you're spending does anything at all. And yet you must make decisions. There's at least one way to win, after all, if you choose well, and surely your odds are better if you at least try to do what you think is right, if you at least make some sort of effort to roll the die before each decision ridiculous. Attempting to impose order on what fundamentally cannot be ordered, that's the joy and sorrow of living. To run from that is to run from it all. Yes. All of it. And do you know, I had this funny thought the other day. This was maybe controversial in a non-controversial way where, okay, the statement is, the woke people could lead us to our emancipation because, you know, as we all have said, contingency, randomness, and contradiction is inevitable. It's always inevitable. And the more we try to lock it down, the more it will just research. So it's always these sort of like the fundamentalists who who go and go and go and create more and more of a stringent attempt to lock everything down, you know, add more and more facts to the pie chart of intersectionality, add more and more pluses to whatever, you know, sexual preference uh, systematic that you have, all it does is exposes the contradiction, you know, and I think they've done a really good job of helping people see <laughs> just that contradictionary, uh, contradic- uh, that's, a, that's a, a neologism, contradictionary, contingency and contradiction are just inevitable facts of life that we always try to flee from. But in trying to flee from them, they will, the more we try to f- flee, the more they'll be exposed. Yeah, it's very interesting, um, you know, alongside, you know, this kind of identitarian culture, I suppose you have and the other poll and probably almost as popular <laughs> would be the Jordan Peterson yeah. order out of chaos model, you know, so you yeah. have this other opposition, which is sort of, sort of Jungian, sort of, um, you know, neo-religious, um, sort of sexist, sort of, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, but it, but he's sort of almost yin yin and yang sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But but you know, this idea that if you have rules and you can kind of you know, even by tidying your room, right, like these kind mm-hmm. of or standing up straight with your shoulders back, or you know, all of these are kind of little micro sort of um, rules. And uh, you know, it's a lot of um, religious practice is about rules in this way, even in the basic physical sense, actually. Um, and if you read Sloterdijk on nemotechnics and religion, you know, in a way, these are these are physiological practices, you know, before or as much as they are spiritual beliefs or commitments, right? Whether we're we're kneeling down to pray or, you know, Pascal's very famous quote, kneel and you shall believe. It's not the other way around. Mm-hmm. You know, you practice and then you, then you're Christian. And so I suppose it's like it's very interesting that the other the other end you have these kind of very micro claims to you know to to sort of defend certain modes of behaving mm-hmm. like that are are trying to put order into chaos or trying to order chaos you know because i suppose the fundamental idea is that chaos is what there is 
like actually yeah, actually you know yeah. and, and the same would go for public order like in britain you know we're having these terrible discussions at the moment about cracking down on protest you know which has been going on for a long time and i used to work for a group called defend the right to protest and i've written a lot about public order and this is you know that they're using kind of covid as an opportunity to do even more restriction on mm. public assembly and public association and freedom of assembly and you know this is uh, in a way, not surprising. One thing I realised in my research is that the state don't perceive order fundamentally. What they see is disorder. Disorder is what they believe exists. They think that people are fundamentally unruly. The population is always in need of control. So, but their starting point and the law's starting point is that that disorder is more fundamental than order. Mm-hmm. Actually, not the other way around. So. And this is much like a kind of Jordan Peterson chaos is what there is. And then there's only order imposed, can be opposed on top. This is the, it's funny because it's like the, the right and left wing um, attempts, although I think they're both in a way right wing, you know, the liberals, I think like that's a right wing position personally. Because I think personally, to me, if I would like to define <laughs> the left myself, it's the ability to allow contingency to erupt and to not try to paper over the eruption of contingency and contradiction through opposition. And it's funny, so it's like the the traditional right might see, yeah, chaos as, as existing. And then what we have to do is sort of like, you know, ride the chaos and control it and lock it down so it can't can't you know bring anything new and it can't it can't destroy things and then on the liberal side it's like no you know chaos is something that has to be eliminated because you know it's it's unusual it's not it's like we just have to make sure it you know it's it's a problem that needs to be got rid of in a, in a sort of slightly different way but maybe the left-wing position is to say yeah there is the potential like the the chaos is where the potential the emancipatory potential actually is I think that we kind of go through phases as a culture, and I talked a little bit about this before we got on, but we kind of go through these phases of trying to lock everything down, and then we get bothered by how stultifying that is, and then we go through a phase where we try to open everything up. And both the left and the right in their own ways go through these phases, and I think largely around the same time. So the right in in trying to return to uh, old religious rules is not that different from the left, which is trying to create a new set of woke rules, uh, just equally stultifying, equally rigid, but one gesturing to the past and one gesturing to the future. In the same way, I think Gen X, there was a right-wing and a left-wing version of Gen X, both of which were anti-rules and about tearing things down and about uh, breaking it up. And I think that the trouble is that when we get into this mode where we are either reacting to there being overly strong rules or reacting to there being an overly loose situation that doesn't give us enough stability for us to feel like we can act with confidence, uh, we always just end up running back and forth. And I'm reminded of de Tocqueville and his book, Ancient Regime and the Revolution, where de Tocqueville kind of uh, depicts France as having become increasingly centralized around the monarchy before the revolution, with the intermediating layers of society, the priests and nobility being weakened and increasingly positioned in Paris. And because of this, there's this a deep alienation between the bulk of the French people who no longer touch the state in any meaningful way and the state itself. When I teach to Tocqueville, I, I compare it to Lord of the Rings. Uh, Louis is, is like the eye of Sauron uh, looking at you from far away. You can see it and and it can see you, and there's nothing in between you and it, just this monolithic tower, all intense and black and disturbing, uh, that you feel no connection to, and yet utterly, utterly dominates your life. And that the experience of looking at the eye of Sauron and seeing it as Sauron is not you as distant, as a, as imposing, uh, creates this desire to overthrow the, the monolith in the center. Uh, But because there's nothing mediating, because there's no other structure really apart from the the center, once you tear it down, you have a vacuum and you have such a level of instability, especially in comparison to what you previously experienced, that it's psychologically uh, too disruptive. You, uh, Robert Gooden talks about uh, in his book on settling, 
the need to settle in some areas so that you can strive in others. We need a semblance of order in some areas so that we can tolerate contingency in others. And if we have too much of one or the other, we freak out and embrace the other to an excessive degree. So France politically goes through this back and forth into Tocqueville's vision between periods of total anarchy and periods of total despotism, uh, never able to find any kind of mediating space because of the strength of the reaction to each one one giving rise to the other. So once we get a major lack of this kind, the lack produces uh, a pernicious type of politics, which is about filling it in with its opposite. And we get into this swinging where we aren't able to sustainably build anything that mediates, uh, that balances. And very rarely do we even see political theorists talk about balance or uh, you know, a, a lot of ancient political theorists talked about it all the time, but we don't get that in a lot of contemporary political theory, especially analytic Anglophone political theory. Mm. I mean, the person who comes to mind in this regard is Edmund Burke, you know, and this kind of as the arch conservative, this emphasis. I mean, the way he does it really is on slowness is to say, look, every change we make has to go through this incredibly slow legal process, like in the introduction of new laws, because he looks over to France in 1789 and sees rapid social transformation and then the terror, which he basically predicts, because the, you know that too rapid change leaves a vacuum which then creates purity spirals, which then creates murder and mayhem. Um, and the revolutionaries are the ones who were caught up the most in a way. And we could say the same for the sexual revolution and, you know, me too is the kind of terror. And what comes after uh, the French Revolution and, and maybe we might enter into a period of Thermidor, you know, like a kind of rebalancing where you say, OK, well, some things about the revolution were good and some things were a bit mad. And let's try and have some kind of combination of tradition and progress or something like this. Um you know, and perhaps we'll see that with the kind of so-called sexual revolution, like a kind of more balanced approach where, you know, perhaps random anonymized sex with people off a dating app is maybe a bit extreme and, and a bit destructive of people's intimate life. <laughs> um, and Maybe a bit. <laughs> a bit, you know, exactly. And but But at the same time, you know, not everybody wants to be in a kind of a very normy family right it's like perhaps there's something in between those two you know maybe we'll get to to that without without the kind of validation or value you know excessive positive value validation or valuation in each direction right so to take the the weight out of either tradition or newness somehow yes it's like it's this sort of believing that we can transcendentally get to something you know so much better so quickly um yeah, that will obviously never work. I like that idea of slowness because part of it, it's like, you know, the Zizek thing of like, don't act, just think. It's mm. like we often just never, we, we get caught up to such an extent in these sort of utopian visions. And obviously life can be very difficult and uncomfortable that we don't take the time to actually like think about what we're really dealing with, you know, what the actual issues at play are. And I think today, obviously, you know, in the sort of Marxian sense, where like the contradiction has been, we're at the, the point in history where the contradiction has been pushed furthest down than it has ever been you know it's the clever thing about capitalism so we are so um like prone to misrecognizing what the actual issues what the actual like societal contradictions are yes so maybe taking time to think about and obviously like thinking has become so like outmoded you know and so um and as we were saying before like being reasonable is like so offensive sometimes now in the states one of the obstacles is that each each side perceives itself as oppressed by a dominant norm which exists outside so in the states in the red states where the 80s norms of of make a nuclear family and and don't screw around uh, are still perceived to be dominant uh, by uh, but they're not perceived to be dominant by the people who live in red states and rural areas. They're perceived to be dominant by people who date on dating apps in blue cities. So they look at their dating on blue apps as, uh, on, on apps in blue cities as a transgressive act. And conversely, the uh, conservatives who live out in the rural areas view their continuing to make normal nuclear families as a transgressive act. So each views the other as heavily normative and themselves as transgressive because it's become possible for these two modes to be quasi-hegemonic in different places. 
and to avoid the baggage of feeling like a hegemonic ideology by pointing to the the alternative hegemony. And so we have a kind of cold war of of dating hegemonies in the states uh, where each causes the other to feel cool and new when both are tired and and derivative. Yeah, that's really funny that the the like two-headed like issues these two poles that exist within western society and, like so often yeah you can in your whatever your position is you can feel so like put upon and you know like was that guy there's like a sort of a right-wing commentator on twitter who says like you know um conservative is the new punk or whatever and then on the other side you can genuinely feel like there's a conservative like um i don't know uh red scare against you as a liberal or whatever it is quite amazing how those two things can exist at the same time and i i know maybe that's maybe that's the new the thing that's new within our like contemporary like arrangement societal arrangement the thing they have in common is that in american culture we put all this emphasis on the cool person who doesn't go the way other people are going so any hegemonic ideology in the states has to dress it up as a form of rebellion mm mm-hmm. Right. And, and if you think back to during the Trump administration, all that resist stuff by the yeah. establishment, which oh. had the bulk of the wealth and power in the country, mm-hmm. uh, everything that is dominant in the states has to pretend to be rebellion. I think to some degree, it goes back to the fact that we began in, an, in a rebellion. Mm-hmm. Rebellion aesthetics are always cool here. Mm-hmm. So everybody needs to be needs to be rebelling against something. Yeah, I think I mean, so the the opposite of all of that would be something like continuity, tradition, you know, and in a way, that's what like conservatism was supposed to be in Britain, at least. But actually, that didn't work either, because the the actual conservatives just became completely beholden to the free market, which was actually, you know, in terms of Schumpeter's definition of creative destruction, the most ra- like, exactly. <laughs> random thing you could do. You know, mm-hmm. it, it didn't preserve um, cricket grounds and bowling greens and you know warm beer and you know all of or i don't know farms warm and, beer <laughs> you know but that was john major's kind of terrible line wasn't it when he said yeah. he thought of england he thought of these things he thought of warm beer and and you know and so but but it didn't but the conservatives didn't actually do what they they said they were you know they they went full bore free market <laughs> instead yeah, the, the marriage depends on con- they're continuing to tell the supporters that they do care about cultural conservatism while in practice constantly threatening it by further embracing the market yes. and by constantly in threatening threatening it by further embracing the market they cause those people to run to the conservative party as a source of stability yeah. so they create the conditions which terrorize their base and then that forces the base to run to them and continue to vote for them that sounds very clever do you think that's deliberate i don't know if it's deliberate i i i'm never confident about assigning intent yeah. but it yeah. it has that it has that function interesting it, it is interesting though because like you say saying about like each you know the, the conservatives selling out the market or whatever because obviously that's also what the labor party did and the so-called left yeah. you know so it's like it is this like perfect world where for for, for capital where these two two sides get to feel like they are the radical ones in relation to the other but each of them are just ratcheting up the exact same issues you know and uh yeah and as you say you know like the it's funny and this is what is always missing in a lot of these sort of like liberal um like movements like sexual freedom and everything it's like well you know the market wants this this is perfect for the market you know like you want you want certain types of sort of like non-universal emancipation or like identitarian emancipation or like particularism wicked we'll sell this back to you you know some some like identifiable thing that is the new thing that's going to make things uh you know magically better as long as you're capitalist it doesn't matter what your aesthetic is Mm -hmm. they'll find something for you you can if you're a capitalist who hates the aesthetic and cultural consequences of capitalism that that works and the same goes in reverse. If you if you like the aesthetic and cultural consequences of it, even if you purportedly hate it, they can dress it up in such a way that you'll accept it by emphasizing those aspects. I think in this regard, it's then interesting to think about what are the speculative risks or existential risks that are generated from the aesthetics of a capitalist society, right? So it's like all of these fears and fantasies about what will end the West. Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. l- let's say there's always been... Oh, you know, millenarian 
ideas about the end of the world or, you know, natural disasters like a meteorite coming to hit us. But what about those sort of speculative thoughts of things like grey goo, like AI run amok or, you know, um, some sort of uh, airborne toxic event or, you know, something that's generated from within the capitalist worldview, if you see what I mean, that will eventually come to destroy it. And I mean, of course, we have these narratives with Extinction Rebellion and the kind of environmental, the man-made aspect of environmental disaster um you know and and Zizek would talk about this a lot where you know uh, before 9-11 but the kind of the number of films that kind of um represented or presented the west sort of being destroyed you know by alien forces or something like this like if there was something of a fantasy about that destruction so i'm quite interested in these these ideas of like existential risk which spiral out from yeah you know things that we have done and, and this would relate to i guess discussions of the anthropocene or the capitalocene i suppose yeah. is more a useful yeah. term i think a lot of it is connected to the feeling that people have that the system already is not something which anybody controls mm. and something that people often try to negate with conspiracy theories which posit the precise opposite that it is all intensely Absolutely. controlled by a small number of people that's a comforting thing yeah mm -hmm. and the reason that people are attracted to that is because it really isn't controlled by anybody it's already the case that we have this globalized market system which has a set of it, incentives which come out of it that overdetermine policy decisions very often that make it very obvious that if you do certain things, you're likely to lose an election uh, and give people very little hope of finding any way to do anything else. And so there's a kind of feeling like it's already the case that there is a technocratic logic that is running the system, not individual human technocrats. The individual human technocrat is just someone who recognizes and abides by the seemingly seeming laws of the neoliberal market ordering uh, that that's a person who is obeying a non-human system a kind of of artificial agent uh, david runciman who's my supervisor at cambridge writes a lot about the artificial agents and the state is the first kind of non-human agent a kind of corporate agent that comes out of a process uh, that isn't reducible to any particular person in which no particular person can dictate and the modern state is a kind of impersonal system, but both the market and the modern state is impersonal systems. And a lot of what attracts a lot of the you know, scholars like Hayek or Schumpeter to the market system is this idea that the market is impersonal, that it doesn't care about mm. what particular humans want uh, or what uh, or the power of particular humans. Uh, and I think similarly, a lot of the thought about the state is increasingly influenced by the same kind of thing, that the right kind of democratic system in the view of some political theorists, works more or less like a market in that it is this impersonal agent that works on the basis of a set of procedural mechanics that are bigger than anybody. Uh, and therefore, the, the human values, the human values that might be in, in tension with this, those are suppressed and they're dangerous because those human values are, are thought to be irrational and senseless, like the idea that uh, it would it might be more important to somebody to be able to uh, go outside and hang out with their friends than survive the pandemic that from the point of view of this system is is an irrational set of values uh, and and something that has to be kind of drummed out and similarly you know wanting to be uh, secure in your house and your job rather than uh, have access to really cheap foreign goods uh, that set of priorities is treated as irrational and is just kind of policed out uh, and so I wonder if, if to some degree all of this worrying about AI is in part a reflection of the fact that we already live under a society in which human values are not the main element in decision making. It is interesting, as you, you were saying before about like the conspiracy theory thing, like so many people like really reasonable people I know, and then you get hear them speak about conspiracy theories, especially on the left. It's just like, what? I mean, I have personal experience with like, I did an internship at an embassy one year when I was at university and I like literally could not believe the level of chaos. Just gonna say, you know, it was just like 24 hours firefighting fuck ups. It was like a it's like a comedy show, you know, it was like a Mitchell and Mitch and Webb did like a quite funny series called The Ambassador or The Ambassadors or something, you know, about this very thing. You know, there's 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 nothing there. And it's funny as well on the left, people who um it seem to find reassurance in attacking the state or the system as if it were a 19th century mm. issue. And it's like, no, this is completely different. We have the liberal state is completely different from say 19th century imperial Britain. It's just like, you know, you're, you're literally, and it is funny as well with a lot of the issues that come up um, in protest culture that are to do with these like 
very old issues and we're actually dealing with something that is possibly worse you know um but yeah the the the, the other thing as well just about the sort of the you know the tendency of people like Hayek to therefore turn to the market as this like very rational system where it's like of course the market is precisely irrational because humans are precisely denatured speaking beings like we speak because we are alienated from nature so it's like it's and you know and if we see like the market system it's not a natural outgrowth of you know human desire because human desire is not natural it's like it's this distorted form that relies on the kind of neurotic form of desire of humans which is to experience lack and to believe that we can fill that lack by some the attainment of some lost object which is like a fallacy like an unnatural fallacy so yeah. I think part of part of the trouble for people is that it's still the case that the state and the market have to be personated a lot of the time. It's still the case that there's someone who's going to speak the decision of the state or the market. The person who's speaking that decision is set upon by various circumstances which put them in a situation where it's very difficult to imagine them saying anything other than what they're saying. And even if you replace them with lots and lots of different people, it's very hard to imagine them saying anything other than what they're saying. And if they did say something other than what they were saying, they wouldn't last very long. They would have to go away very soon. And and because of that, I think that there's this conflation of the personators with the decision makers. And so still people projecting this idea of, of human beings deciding mm-hmm. onto it. Mm. I think, yeah, this, this kind of, there's an inability to tolerate, let's say, um, indecision in the other or lack of belief. You know, Zizek talks about this, this, this idea that we always think the other believes, but we ourselves are kind of multifaceted and have, you know, we can, can, we can, um, contemplate like multiple different viewpoints, but somehow there's always this other which just has a single position and they think it all the time. You know, whether we're talking about religious, belief or political belief you know and that there's a kind of um yeah this yeah whether we're projecting it onto the state or onto technocrats or onto people we don't like it's the idea that there's a kind of there's no pluralism of beliefs like as it were like we're not mature enough actually yeah, <laughs> now yeah, sound yeah. Like a, a very classical liberal but like you know to tolerate the idea that people have different beliefs for different reasons right and that that we might and we all have different beliefs in amongst ourselves it's like you know we might say oh i'm a leftist or i'm this and that and that would sort of account for it's, it's shorthand for let's say certain things we might agree on but actually at the same time we we, we will probably disagree on 25 30 different things or we, we might disagree on how we would get to that those things if we agree that they're um you know they're goods that everybody should have or whatever so it's there's something about this kind of contingency as well like the kind of the fact that we are incomplete you know not just that we're lacking of course that we are and and that we're denatured you know and that that it's almost in our nature to be unnatural and um but but also this yeah the the idea that we're always in a constant process of becoming and we're always different from ourselves and as well as different from other people you know, that that's a lack of insecurity in the social that's almost unbearable. Like, it's much easier if we just say those people are the bad guys because they believe this thing, you know, as opposed to going, oh, hang on, maybe they don't really know what they're talking about. And nor do I. <laughs> like, <laughs> I think the thing that's really terrifying for a lot of people is, is the realization that in a lot of these systems, every human being that you talk to, if you told them about something you didn't like about that system, it might even be the case that every single person you talk to might agree with you. And yet the decision will continue to go on as it has before because of these impersonal elements, which are forcing them to behave, right? Or making it such that they can't see where the decision is happening. So at Cambridge, this happens all the time. You take a problem to somebody and they'll agree with you and they'll go, well, I would love to help you with that. But for that decision to happen, these other people would also have to to help, right? So if you take a decision to your college, they go, well, the university would have to help or the department would have to help, right? You have to go get these other people, right? You go talk to those other people and they'll say the first person you talk to is the problem, right? They'll, they'll just keep pointing you around and around and everybody feels like it's something that should change, but nobody, nobody's ever in a position to change it. Yeah. 
It really reminds me of... So, sorry, Helen, just really quickly on yeah, this point. Of, of Sartre's definition of seriality in The Critique mm-hmm. of Dialectal Reason. And he gives this very good example, which is like the the number one pop song in the charts is 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 not the song that everyone loves. It's the song that nobody loves, actually. It's the song that people dislike the least, weirdly. And so, so the thing that is kind of not loved is is in charge <laughs> in a weird way because everybody sort of is um very atomized and individual in in the in the way that they behave because there's no kind of collective response in a certain way and and so sameness is what's rare difference is what there is actually and difference and disagreement ends up perpetuating like a kind of stasis or a banal culture um but but it, but actually, it's only when you have sameness, let's say, in the revolts or the revolutionary situation, that there is a kind of shared, temporarily agreed yeah. unity of purpose. Absolutely, and it's well. Just to go back to you know what you were saying before about like the wanting and having multiple wants, but also not even knowing what you want at all. Like, finally, it's just like I like to be human is to not know. Well, is to not know what you desire, or to you know. And maybe we can get somewhere by attempting to understand what we desire. But, you know, this is always an unconscious thing. But, yeah, that that I like that idea that, you know, these moments of unity. Um, and, I mean, I do think that the market relies on on this on this atomization that you're talking about, on this on this perpetual difference. These moments of unity, really, things can change. It's funny, Benjamin, though, we were saying about Cambridge, like, I do think that these these old institutions, we were talking about, like, the royal family being, like, anti-fragile last week. <laughs> like, that these old institutions are, like, almost there, inevitably, because you, yeah, they, they, I, I used to work in this sort of 600-year-old institution, and it was like this weird non-management management. management. <laughs> like, no, there was literally no management. And everybody who was working in this in this sort of hub, you never saw anybody else. You you always felt it it ran by the feeling that everybody else was watching what you were doing, what everybody else was really busy or whatever. But yeah, there was no, there was no like recourse to any sort of human head anywhere. Yeah, it's kind of Kafka-esque. It's a Byzantine yeah. mechanism that's too complicated for anyone to understand it. And I don't think there's anyone who works at Cambridge, apart from maybe the people who lead the academic union there, who actually understand how it works as an integrated system. It's too complicated. People only bother to learn the parts that they have to deal with. And so as soon as they have a problem which requires interfacing with some other part, they get confused and don't know what to do. Uh, and I think it's similar with, with hospitals. And most of the people who work in hospitals only really understand the part of the hospital with which they regularly deal with and not very much else. It's kind of like we all have the experience now of being the person who takes your order at McDonald's. Right. And we all recognize when the Karen comes to McDonald's and the Karen treats the person who takes the order as if that person was McDonald's, as if that person could act like like McDonald's with the the force and the power of McDonald's as a collective corporate entity. Uh, But they can't do that. And none of us can do that. We're always being put in position where we're asked to speak for corporate entities with which we can only personate. There's an incredibly um, funny and relevant scene in The Sopranos in this regard where, you know, the usual kind of extortion racket where you would go to like a small business and you'd say, like, we'll protect you if you give us, you know, a portion of your monthly income. And they try to, so some of the kind of hench, Tony's henchmen go to like a, a, a fast food franchise and they try to extort the fast, the, the, um, the franchise but they're talking to like let's say two teenagers who literally have no idea what they're talking about who have no power of decision whatsoever they're like should i call the manager like and it but it's it's part of a multinational corporation right like there's certain modes of kind of interacting even the you know criminal ones that depend upon like a localism right and it, (laughs) it was just this brilliant kind of um um I don't know, depiction of the reality of kind of capitalist, bureaucratic indifference and impossibility. Mm -hmm. Like they just couldn't, they they had to leave, right? You can't extort, you know, a McDonald's franchise or whatever. It's like, you just can't do it. (laughs) You can't act locally. The decisions aren't local. Yeah. It's interesting, you know, to go back um, to Nina, what you were saying about like Jordan Peterson, his set of course, it's interesting. Some friends did a podcast about his new book, um, and the idea of well, in psychoanalysis, you know, we subjectivity is divided in sort of a Freudian, Lacanian lens between um, psychotic, perverse, and obsessive, and within each, within each bracket, there's sort of different forms of it. And that obviously, you know, a neurotic person has 
a sense of self, you know, arbitrary formed ego, and that potentially other other forms of subjectivity are kind of looser and require maybe these art- artificial limbs and crutches of systems to get by. So there is that with the John Peterson thing, but um, but it's interesting though in terms of like this um, th- this corporate world and this sort of uh, you know absolute kind of um, absurdity of it, and also that. You, this is this is the new thing, and I, I do sort of see people analysing the status quo with these antiquated lenses because just we don't like just we don't ordinarily envisage the world as something new. And yes, we can kind of make predictions. I mean, like the owl of Minerva flies at, after dawn or whatever the Hegelian thing is. And you know, obviously, the thing with Marx as well is that there was an element of predicting, and you know, we can't predict. We can't predict. We can maybe look to history for suggestions, but like this, this new corporate world, it, it is absolutely new. And yeah, I mean, how do we deal with this? How do we analyze it? Well, and people try to go up the chain. They try to treat it like it's a military structure where you just go up and you find the person who's on top and you talk to them and then you're actually speaking to the company. But of course, that person who's on top is only on top because they conform to a particular kind of system by which the people on top are selected. And that person feels as much a prisoner of that system as they feel some someone with any kind of agency. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's a really interesting point. And it kind of po- poses the question of whether we could ever get to a kind of post-institutional um, society in a way. Like, well, you know, we built all these institutions, there are all these systems, you know, we don't need Weber to tell us about bureaucracy. But, you know, like, they've, they're kind of wildly out of control. The anthropological machine has generated all of these things which now we're trapped in and we're we're like caught in the cogs of the machine and everybody's caught in it and like no one is the machine and i suppose you know at the same time we see kind of the collapse of institutions in a certain way like once they no longer have kind of values beyond the values of the system itself which is to say capitalist values let's say they need to make a profit and they need to avoid losing money right so they might avoid controversy let's say as opposed to being in favor of higher values like free speech or whatever or truth you know then these institutions are are themselves the victim of the system right so it's which is what benjamin was saying and so so i suppose it's like to imagine a world in which you know there are i don't know the reinstatement of higher values or or you know something else beyond that and i mean people do this all the time i mean people oppose their own personal values to the values of institutions right i think this is what it means in a way to have a private life, mm-hmm. you know, insofar as that's possible, right? To to sort of decide to determine for oneself what value is, you know, and, and this is this is coming after Nietzsche's diagnosis of nihilism and the kind of, you know, the collapse of values and the transvaluation of all values, which it's not even clear that that is ever happened or is it even possible. But what you have is the kind of questioning of val- the value of value. You know, why is value important um at all but at the same time it's like without any sort of clinging on to something beyond the system you are just like you know uh, impaled on a cog well and, and the other the other thing people do is is they look for a caesar figure to smash institutions in a personal way and using a lot of personal language because a caesar figure uh, and i think part of the appeal of of a lot of this discussion of ai running things it's a kind of techno caesar it's something mm. which all of a sudden makes the whole thing feel controlled by somebody even if it's a robot or yeah. a machine uh, and a lot of engineers and and stem stem folks like the idea of a computer making political decisions because they like the way computers make decisions and it would feel like somebody was deciding and that they could have some influence over how that thing is designed or programmed and to them that would be more political influence than they can have under any kind of set of, of human institutions. You know, to, to, last week we were talking about, Benjamin and I, about um, uh, the arts and what kind of work somebody ends up being able to do according to their means. You know, and often you get people that can seem very frustrating from the outside. You make very ideological work as, you know, without without values, as, as me said, I, I sort of find as an artist, unless you have values to a certain extent, you know, you might, you you will end up being caught up in the winds of ideology and just become like a mouthpiece. And the thing is, it's, it's often people who don't have any other choice as in they've decided to do this, but they have to earn a crust. So they're going to make, you know, an X 
sort of piece of work that is commissioned by X organization to confirm the ideology of the day. So in a way, we should feel sorry for the likes of these, you know, these mega Marvel-esque corporations who are so, you know, under the thumb of, of, of earning money and generating money that they have to make this mediocre non-art mm. because, you know, that there's, they, they don't have the chance to, to sort of actually yeah, be free of that. And I think a lot of them, certainly when they started, probably did have artistic values that were substantive and they might still have them. But it, it gets to a point where they have to identify with the values that they must conform to. Otherwise, they would burn out. So the only way you can sustain in that kind of space is to adapt your values to suit what the institution will permit you to have. Yeah. And, and then obviously the the institution itself becomes the victim of <laughs> the same the same issues, you know. Yeah, completely. It's like, you know, if you were given the choice of like making a million dollars a year or being able to run around in a field the moment the sun comes out. I mean, like I know full well that I would choose the latter, like <laughs> in a heartbeat. You know, I mean, yeah. I, you know, the kind of the horrible pressure of having to, you know, be the administrator of a system you didn't choose. And, you know, meanwhile, your soul is atrophying and, you know, you haven't seen your children in two weeks. You know, I mean, this is not this is not freedom. And I mean, there's one thing I wanted to say actually about the, the relationship between like freedom and liberty. It's like, you know, we, we're kind of fundamentally mistaken in many ways if we think that freedom is just doing what we want whenever we want to like this is this is a kind of illusion or delusion really uh, that's encouraged by a kind of consumer culture so the idea you could eat eight cakes in a day if you really wanted to right like that's that's pleasure that you can if you've got money to buy eight cakes but of course you would feel like horrific if you did it i mean it would be actually very bad for you right and then you would be unfree because you'd be trapped by like horrible stomach ache and and whatnot (laughs) so there is a sense in which this kind of putting your own desires in order you know, which really was what a lot of moral philosophy and political philosophy was about. It was like, how do you regulate these forces um, that are very deep? And, you know, how do you have a society that functions when people occasionally go wrong or, you know, you need to kind of regulate, um, you know, certain behaviours and, and and so on. And, and, you know, I'm obsessed with the idea, like in Hobbes's time, everyone was obsessed with lycanthropy, you know, because the lycanthropy, the, the man who becomes a wolf is basically like a metaphor for melancholy. And it's it's so it's the person who falls outside of the social because they become so unhappy that they're basically wolf-like. And of course, Hobbes is the very famous, you know, man is a wolf to man. And it's not that all people behave like that to each other. It's that it's an inherent possibility of the human that the human becomes antisocial. You know, and that, that actually one of the questions of politics is how to actually, you know, maintain the, the social of the political, like to keep people enough together. You know, it's interesting what you say as well about, you know, the the, 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 the capitalist. Like, I, I, I feel like we have to feel sorry for the capitalist. And often, like from the left, we, we critique you know, the, the the people in charge from the wrong direction. And, you know, I think this, we, we've literally talked about the Harry and Meghan thing, like maybe once, <laughs> once it's come up like once every time. But I just think it just concretizes this so well. It's like, perhaps like the best way to critique it is to be like, no, we absolutely feel sorry for them. These people are miserable. And they're miserable precisely because in a world where you have to keep earning your crust to sustain your, you know, ridiculous lifestyle and have all your security guards and what have you. You're, you're subject to the same pressures. Obviously, they have like an inordinate amount of money and it's kind of horrible to hear people of that wealth talk about victimhood. But it, it speaks to something about their subjective experience. You know, they feel immensely alienated as well you know? mm. it's funny we have like billionaire alienated people by the market yeah the whole modern conception of liberty the way we've conceptualized it is built around we feel alienated from the collective mm-hmm. we want to be able to say that this is us and not something else controlling us it's about kind of protecting that self-other distinction because we don't feel unified with everything else right and i think that you know, the, the older way that ancient people used to conceptualize freedom was about feeling like you were part of the collective decision. So you were free insofar as you were part of the decision. But for that to happen, the decision has to be intimate enough for you that you can actually be participatory in it. And as we've gotten institutions that are too big and too complex for that to ever be possible, we've evolved this other conception of liberty where instead of being able to feel a union with political decision making, you're able to go, well, I am totally alienated from political decision making, but in this private box, I can do what I want. 
in this private box that's still me, I can do what I want. But of course, that division between what's you and what's not you is to some degree uh, made up and, and misleading and ideological. And what is happening in your private box is never just what is going on in your private box, what you've decided to do. When you're embedded in these systems all the time, the things that you decide to do in your private box are a consequence of the roles that you play in those systems and the way those systems impinge on your life. So we've got this conception of freedom, which is really about rationalizing a sense of lack of identity with anything that happens, with any decision that is taken. Uh, and, and in a way, it's, it's, it's cliche, but freedom is not freedom. Yeah, it's like the you know the this I am myself kind of thing. It's like the A equals A. A doesn't ever equal A. You know, like my I'm never myself. I never know what you know what I am. Yeah, we just yeah I don't know. Yeah, and we we never know what like freedom is. And as you say, this version of ourselves is always like very ideological. This understanding that we have of ourselves. If you're someone who takes a decision, if you're if you're part of taking the decision, then your values matter, and it matters about getting your soul in order and having your you know Plato's winged chariot, you know, controlling the horses of the appetites and the spirit. But if all of that stuff is just something which goes on in a private box, then the only problem is if it manifests as criminal behavior, and otherwise, who cares? And that's kind of where we've where we've come to. Although they they ever increase the definition of what is criminal behavior. Should we leave it there for the A side? <laughs> yeah, I think I think I think we should. Yeah, that's good. Okay. All right. So thanks, guys, for listening. We're going to go over and do the B side of the podcast for our listeners on Patreon now. And uh, thank you so much for joining us. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.